Welcome to the Equine Connection Podcast, where health, nutrition, and love for the horse come together. This podcast is brought to you by Tribute Superior Equine Nutrition. I'm Dr. Chris Mortensen. And I'm Dr. Nicole Rambo. Hey, it's great to see you, Nicole. How are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? Doing good, doing good. And today's topic, obviously, I, I, I got excited about this one because this goes back to my days at doing some research down at the University of Florida. And I think we can talk a little bit about it today, but this idea or concern that horse owners have about feeding soy to mares. So you hear this quite often, don't you? A little bit of concern there? Oh yeah, absolutely. Pretty common question. Right. And it's, and, and, and the research is interesting. And I will say when we started it, there was not a lot known, but there is some stuff today that we're going to talk about and dig into the literature a little bit explain what people have concerns with it. I think just to start out, it is always good to discuss why we use soy because it does come up with allergies and some other concerns, but there is a reason it is the go-to protein for horse feed, right? Yes. So a couple different points. The first being it's a really great source of the amino acids that the horse generally doesn't get enough quantity from their forage. So those limiting amino acids, lysine, methionine, threonine. So when we're thinking about adding protein to the diet, we're really looking to complement what they get from their forage. Because as we we just discussed in our past podcast, most horses get plenty of protein. It's whether or not they're getting the quality of protein they need. So one, there's a great quality standpoint there. You know, the other part is it's something that's readily available because it's grown in large quantities. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter how great something is, you can't commercialize it if there's not enough quantity to fulfill your needs. And then it's also palatable to horses. So I think sometimes there's this misconception that soy is used because it's a cheap protein. It's affordable for sure, but you know, price and quality are both part of that decision process and using it in commercial products. It really is a great source of protein, and we see it in our own diets, you know, in, in, in human foods. Now, what are the concerns you keep hearing? Because this, this topic keeps coming up. It was actually our, our second episode ever. If we go back to uh, 2020, the end of 2020, we were talking about soy because people do email you and, and they have concerns. So what are some of the things you're hearing? And I don't know if we want to recap. But what did we find as far as soy and, and I guess feed allergies is a big one and some of the other stuff? So soy and allergies is one thing. I, I'd recommend people go back to that podcast, although it was an early one and I'm sure we're better mm. at this now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, but ultimately there is a concern about phytoestrogens, both in thinking about soy for reproducing mares and then just also an, an interest in it in general. I think, you know, we've talked about moody mares in the past and there's concern that maybe it contributes to some of those issues as well. I would say as we go through this, I don't know that there's strong support of that fear, but that is ultimately, I think, the fear. And and you've dug into this phytoestrogen thing mm. from the research standpoint as well. Yeah, we did. We did. And it was with uh, Dr. Angie Adkin and Dr. Lori Warren at the University of Florida. And, and, what, and this was because there was concern with soy and these phytoestrogens in horse feeds 
So we just really quickly, I can just recap the study, you know, less than a minute or two. Yeah, please. We, yeah, looking at this, we realized there was no reliable method of how to measure these phytoestrogens. So that was the the major part of Angie's uh, dissertation or for her PhD work was just just measuring this phytoestrogens in horse feed and blood. And then we wanted to ask, do horses actually get it in their bloodstream? So that was the next step. And and she went and fed a commercial grain with soybean meal as the protein source. And we found that, yes, in fact, horses do absorb some phytoestrogens from that. And a step further to see if the mares were passing it in their milk, and they found a little bit of phytoestrogens in the foals. So hey, we, we, we did establish that horses are getting these phytoestrogens, but I think the big question and that's what you and I all week have, have been going back and forth with, is does it impact fertility? Mm-hmm. And that's the question, right? So does it? And, and, and I don't know, you can kind of recap some of the research because in ruminants, cattle and sheep, we know some of these phytoestrogens have effects, but does that happen in the non-ruminant like the horse? Absolutely. So I think as a little bit of background, Real briefly, you know, what are phytoestrogens? These are non-steroidal compounds that are naturally present in plants. They are structurally similar to the natural estrogen that your body produces, and that is a hormone. And because they have structural similarities, they can have estrogen-like activity, potentially competing with estrogen. Depending on which one, they can be agonists or antagonists. So sometimes we kind of lump them all together in these broad discussions, but that doesn't really capture how complicated this topic is. And and we won't go into that depth today. The other thing I do want to point out, I mean, the topic of this was feeding soy to mares, but I think the main concern is around phytoestrogens. And to realize it's not just a soy topic. So soy has a couple specific phytoestrogens, sometimes broadly called isoflavones. You have genestine and daidzine. Other ingredients also have phytoestrogens. So on your legumes, they also have genestine and one called cumestrol. There's been actually a decent amount of research around cumestrol, particularly in other species, a little bit in the horse. You know, flaxseed has another form of phytoestrogen. Um, and then, in fact, resveratrol, which I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with. It's a nutraceutical. It's used from everything from joint support to support in insulin-resistant horses. I mean, resveratrol is a phytoestrogen categorically as well. So just, again, bringing a little bit more context that I think soy oftentimes has this big target on it, but the discussion is much, much broader than that. And I will point out, if you've made it this far, uh, I have no issue replacing soy in the diet of any horse, whether it's really founded based on a scientific or an allergy or whatever need, Mm. or like you're like, I hate soy, I don't want it. That's fair. The one thing you have to remember is you need to replace the good attributes that soy brings to the diet. So there's a lot of diets that just take it away and then the horse, their nutritional needs aren't met. So just that's a little bit more background context to this topic. But you brought up, let's start with the the other species, mm-hmm. you know, sheep and cattle, both ruminants. There, There is a fair amount of research here. 
that there are some pretty significant fertility issues with feeding really high levels of your phytoestrogens, either coming from your legumes, so your alfalfa clover in the form of cumestrol, or those soybean meal-based ones, the isoflavones. The interesting thing you find here is ultimately we have to think of the physiology of the animals we are working with. So there's some really neat research that looks at the actual form of the dietary phytoestrogen. So in the case of the ones coming from soybean meal, they're biologically inactive until in the ruminant they're acted by the microbes that live in the rumen and they turn them into equal. Mm. Equal is interesting because that's actually an active form that was first discovered in the horse. That's why it has like the EQ in front of it, which I think is a cool factoid. But if we think about where, you know, the majority of your absorption is occurring in an animal, it's in the foregut and in ruminants, that's after they have that bacterial fermentation, whereas horses, it's at the end. So I'm hypothesizing that maybe you're really seeing these ruminant impacts pretty strongly because of where these are naturally metabolized in the animal. Clearly, based on your research, we're getting some absorption of those. But is it amplified in ruminants just because of the way that they are basically fundamentally put together? Mm. The physiology of the horse is backwards to that of the sheep and the cow. Yeah, I mean, though, and and that's I think another genesis of this was we are seeing such drastic effects. Not drastic. I mean, some effects in the ruminant species, but mainly it's it's alfalfa and clover. If you look at the, the the studies that they did, that's where they're getting their phytoestrogens. You don't see a lot on soy specifically. Correct. There's a little bit on soy. The the bulk of it mm-hmm. is around the legume based ones, which is mm-hmm. which is where we have one study in horses. And you know, in this particular study, it's a study out of Portugal, and they fed a halage clover alfalfa diet. So it's a fermented type of forage, not something we'd usually feed in the U.S., but for those of you who live in other parts of the world, you're probably very familiar with haylage. And it was clover and alfalfa-based, and they they did see some detrimental impacts to mare fertility that only occurred when they were on this particular diet. Mm. But I think two things to remember here. One, when you look at the level of cumestrol in that particular forage, because it varies, right? Even within alfalfa, the amount of phytoestrogen within alfalfa, it's going to vary. So they had a high concentration and they fed it as the whole diet. And the level is so much higher than you would have for a phytoestrogen intake when you're feeding a commercial bagged product in combination with some sort of grass type forage, which is what a lot of horses are fed. Now, There are also horses who are fed 100% alfalfa diets. So, you know, there is some possibility you could run into this. It it really hasn't been documented in any broad way, though. And in that case, forage is what would be driving that response, not the commercial bagged product. Again, going back to quantities, a horse is going to eat 20 or 25 pounds of hay Mm -hmm. and a couple pounds, up to 10 pounds maybe of a commercial product. Well, in the beginning, there's different phytoestrogens, and I think that's part of what you know Dr. Atkin was looking at was 
it's it's hard to isolate these phytoestrogens and which one has a more effect than the others. And so there, there, I think the bottom line is the work that we did down there was there needs to be more research in this area. Absolutely. And there is a follow-up study that kind of builds off the work that you did. Mm-hmm. This came out of UC Davis, and it's really one definitive one that we have in the horses. And what they did is they they looked at a longitudinal study where they followed the same group of mares over two years, and they looked at reproductive parameters, you know, including some internal stuff, and they measured their cycles and some really repro science stuff like you get into. Mm-hmm. And then also the big picture number, which is conception rate. And, you know, as a breeder, that that's ultimately the number that you're making decisions based on. Did I get a foal on the ground? Yes or no. So what they did in this study is they followed these mares for two years. In year one, they fed a diet that is quote unquote high in phytoestrogens. So they fed a soy and alfalfa based diet. So they're like, we are going to put all the phytoestrogens into the diet. So you have it come in from both directions. And then year two, they fed a low phytoestrogen diet, so they they didn't use soy and alfalfa, and they compared measures across those two years. And ultimately, they did measure, you know, some small changes in the actual reproductive measures between year one and year two, like a little bit of differences in their cycles and uterine tone and some things like that. But at the end of the day, there was no difference in conception rate between years one and two. So Right now, we have, you know, some research in ruminants that suggests that there definitely can be issues. We recognize their physiology is a little bit different. We have one study in mares that is specifically following, you know, in the same group of mares, year one versus two, and they they didn't find a difference in the one parameter that I would argue matters the most, conception mm-hmm. rate. Right, right. And, and, and I mean, overall... The great thing about horses and, and like the, my field, reproductive physiology, is horses generally don't have a trouble getting pregnant where cattle or especially dairy, uh, sometimes sheep and these other species overall generally are, are, are pretty fertile. There's other issues that are, that are more important that we're looking at, like, you know, causing uterine infections or postpartum, trying to get them in full as quickly as possible. So there's all these other considerations other than dietary, because we just have never noticed, I guess, as in, in our field that diet has an impact, but we think you know, it could, right? Like in the most extreme circumstances, if somebody is really worried, they have fertility problems with their, their mares, what is something that you could suggest? I know we sat on the market that, that they could use, but let's say somebody is having issues, having fertility issues, they are really worried. Hey, soy might be a problem. Maybe it's an allergy. Maybe it's these other things. What would you suggest as a nutritionist? Yeah. So like I said at the beginning, I think there's no issue removing soy from the diet as long Mm. as you replace it with other good quality protein sources. You know, the solution is not to do what you sometimes see, which is say, you know what, I'm going to do it the old way and I'm going to feed just oats or just corn or whatever for two reasons. One, we know it's not going to... provide that mare's micronutrient needs to support that gestation. And that growing foal, we also know that it significantly increases the risk of developmental orthopedic disorders, just all that sugar mm. and starch. And then just just to throw on one more source of phyto, one really interesting phytoestrogen 
is one of the mycotoxins. Uh, so xeralinone, it's from the fusarium fungus, and it's been re- linked to reproductive problems in grain-fed pigs. So that's why this has been studied. That pops up in corn. <laughs> so, mm-hmm, like in mm-hmm. so many different directions that can come from. Yeah, so ultimately we, we do have some soy-free products. None that are specifically labeled for mares or growing horses, but we can use a combination of products like the soy-free Colonese or the Wholesome Blend Senior and then add the Wholesome Blend Balancer to really bump up the level of micronutrient fortification to be the level we know we need to optimize growth, both, you know, gestational growth, so we're providing all those needs in uterus and then for that foal on the ground if we're going to continue that through. So at the end of the day, you know, there's there's ultimately not strong research to suggest this is a specific issue in horses. I think it's a fair option if you have one you just could not get bred and you're like, she's a really good one. I'm going to do anything I can. Yeah, we can definitely explore that. But just mm-hmm. just be cautious that we need to think about the big picture of the diet and not just focus on that one thing, which I think is people's biggest hang up when they try to eliminate ingredients yeah i mean there's so many things that cause infertility like you know low body condition score i've seen it you know trying to get them pregnant and they won't get pregnant there's a there's a whole multitude of issues multitude of issues so if you are concerned obviously you want to discuss this with your veterinarian they can do a breeding soundness uh, to diagnose uh, your your particular horse and then make suggestions on on that but it just amazes me that there are soy-free products now, you know, in the tribute line. Like, it's something I would have never thought of when we started going down this rabbit hole of research that it, some of this would lead to soy-free products or things like that. So hats off to to you guys at Tribute. Any other final tips you want to give to the listeners? No, I think we've very well covered it this week. This is a fun topic, and I I certainly enjoy digging into the nitty-gritty, and I hope the listeners do as well. And if you have requests for other topics, please let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Let us know. You can go to the website, tributeequinenutrition.com. You you said this was was obviously a fun topic because I've spent a few years looking at this. Next week's topic, I'm really excited about too. So I, I'm just going to leave it there for the listeners. <laughs> a little teaser. It is. It is. I was. I was already starting to dig into it. I'm really excited to talk about this topic next week. So stay tuned. Thanks, Chris. <laughs>